About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. We are kind of between series. We finished our Exodus series last week, and as Brent mentioned, we'll be starting a series on the letters to the seven churches next week. So we have an opportunity to take a passage and just look at it for just one week, and it's a passage I love. But before looking at it further, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, you, uh, you see us perfectly, and you see the weeks that we've had, the months that we've had, even the year that we've just had. And you know how easy it is for us to lose sight of what is real and what is true and what we most need to see. And so I ask that in this time that your word would open our eyes again to see what is true, that you would help us to see how you are at work, how you are the God who is bringing about his purposes, how you are the God who answers prayer. Would you please shape us in this time and help us to hear what you have to say to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, as this year comes to a close, if you have felt a kind of tension 
regarding how we are to see this world, a tension in terms of different ways of how to, to tell the story of what is going on right now around us. It seems to me for 2017, we have been besieged by a story that we might consider a story of cynicism or depression or, or even despair. I mean, the plot line that seems to be the focal point is that we have two utterly irreconcilable parties that just hate each other. And meanwhile, the debt is getting bigger and bigger, and we've got issues where the poor and the rich are getting further and further apart from each other. And meanwhile, North Korea has ICBMs, and the climate seems to be going haywire, and the leaders are more incompetent and even more corrupt than ever before, and there seems to be no plan for what's supposed to happen, and we meanwhile feel helpless as this nation is pulled and pushed and torn apart. That's the story that I think we've been hearing this past year. That's the story that I feel like we are regularly being exposed to. But there's another story. It's the story that hopefully as we've been studying Exodus, we have been hearing and sensing. It's the story of, yes, if you think about Exodus, there are terrible things that happen. Yes, there are bad leaders like Pharaoh. But underneath that, there is a deeper reality. There is a God who is good and who is great and who loves his people and who hears them when they cry out to him and is working all things for the good. Now, because we are so besieged by this first story, this this story of despair, it's hard for us to hold on to the other one. I mean, if you've been part of the discipleship group maybe in the last few months as we've, been, as we've been thinking about prayer together, hopefully that has helped kind of deepen this idea that there is a deeper story, not a story of despair, but a story of hope. Because, because what is prayer as we've been thinking about prayer? Prayer in some ways is an act of defiance against despair. It is declaring with our actions that we believe that God is real and that he hears us and that he answers prayer. But yet we are besieged by this counter-narrative. It surrounds us. And so this morning what I'd like us to do is just to look at a moment in the life of the church in the New Testament where they are themselves tempted to let go of the real story of hope and succumb to the story of despair. And we see the reason for this temptation right at the very first verse of our passage, where we read, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now just to kind of situate you, we're about 10 years now after Jesus has risen and ascended. Over those 10 years, a church that began of just 120 rather scared people in one room is now expanded, and there are thousands of Christians, not just in Jerusalem, but also in the surrounding nations. And yet, though the church is experiencing God's blessing, yet by human standards, they are weak. They have zero political influence. And so they are subject to whatever the powers that be want to do, including at times violently oppressing them. Just not that long ago, Stephen, one of their leaders, was stoned. He was killed. So there's the church. And and you might say the church is good, but by human standards, they are not powerful. Now, on the other hand, we see this other character in this first verse. There's Herod, and Herod is the opposite. 
He is powerful, but he's not good. I suppose the best thing that you could say about him is that he was a politically shrewd individual. When there was a transition in leadership in Rome, he backed the right guy. Because of that, he was given power over the entire area of Israel. And he continues to act shrewdly. That is his gift. He does not seem to have a principled or prayerful bone in his body. Instead, he sees the forces of the world, and he knows how to manipulate the system. And so really what you could say is from the outset, we have these two figures representing two kingdoms, two ways of viewing the world. There is the kingdom of this world represented by Herod, where all that matters is the power that you can see and manipulating power and getting your own way. And then there is the kingdom of God where the church is looking beyond themselves, beyond the things that they can see, trusting in God. And we see these two powers in conflict. We're told at the outset that, that Herod makes another politically shrewd move. He is in with the Roman establishment, but he's not yet really in with the Jewish leadership. And so he says, what should I do? I'm going to pick on a person, on a group of people who cannot strike back at me because I know this will make the Jewish leaders happy with me. So it says he lays violent hands on Christians. Without any warnings, guards go to different homes of different Christian believers. And and some of the leaders are, are carted off to prison, including James. And it says, well... James is imprisoned, and and in that moment, the church must be afraid. We don't know much about James. Um, We know that he was one of the three apostles that saw Jesus transfigured. He was one of the three apostles that was there when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gave him and his brother nicknames, Sons of Thunder, which probably meant they just didn't have volume control, like they were very loud apostles. And it's been 10 years now, and you have to imagine that Pastor James is well-loved by the church. Maybe he was a gifted preacher, or maybe he was a guy who was really good with one-on-one ministry, and people would love to talk to him and say, tell me again that story about how Jesus raised that person from the dead, or, or tell me what it was like the night before Jesus died. And so you can only guess that as, as James is taken away and imprisoned, how the people of God in that area must have been praying, praying for God's rescue. And if this were a Disney movie, we know what would happen, that somehow James, in the darkness of the prison, would befriend a kind-hearted guard, and somehow together they would break out and find their way to the church, and there would be like this great celebration, but that is totally not what happens, is it? It says that Herod violently puts him to death with the sword. And so at the very outset of this passage that is ultimately going to be about prayer and God's working, we are reminded with this note of realism that, that God doesn't always do what we ask him to do when we pray. If we're honest, that's part of the reason that we have a hard time holding on to this, this story that God is at work, that he is making all things right, because there are times when we ask God and he doesn't do what we ask. And it's not just the really, really big things, like when someone looks like they're facing death. It's in the small day-to-day things that can discourage us and confuse us. 
If you are a parent of, of young children, I know what strikes fear in your hearts. You have in your inbox this email from the school nurse, and the school nurse says that there is a stomach bug that has been passed around in your kid's school or preschool. And in that very moment, if you are a mom, you spring into desperate action. You take your five-gallon jug of hand sanitizer and you wipe every square inch of your kid's body. You wash their clothes. Or maybe if you want to be really thorough, you incinerate their clothes. And then after that, you pray and you pray and you pray. And then that night, in the middle of the night, as you hear this weak, mournful cry from the other room, you know that you are facing a week of misery before you. And so maybe the next day as you are holding the bucket for the younger sibling of the person who now also is sick, you are asking yourself, God, why, why didn't you answer my prayer? Why are my kids so sick? I mean, it's a, it's a common occurrence that we pray and God doesn't answer and it can confuse us. And what our passage reminds us from the outset is that prayer isn't magic. It's, it's not a matter of technique. If we just ask in just the right way, with just enough passion and just enough faith, God will do it. Because prayer is asking a person. It's asking the person who is God himself. And, and sometimes when we pray, our prayers aren't answered. And that's not because of our failure. And it's not because of God's failure. It's because God in his love has chosen to do something better for us, something that is different. Sometimes it's a matter of God choosing to refine us rather than to spare us, of choosing to bring us through the suffering rather than to bring us past the suffering. And that's what we see here when, when the church, this young church, mourns the death of their beloved leader. So as the passage continues, we find out that Herod was, by his standards, successful. It says the Jewish leaders were pleased with him, and when he realized, hey, I'm on to something good here, he decides to take it one step further. And so he arrests Peter this time. And it says that it's during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but once Passover is over, the plan is for him to have a trial, and almost certainly that trial is going to end in execution. And this would have been just a gut punch to the church. I mean, first it's James, now Peter. Peter, in some ways, was their figurehead. He was the one closest to Jesus. He is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now they've got Peter. What is going to happen to us? And so somewhere in that point of desperation, as they understand that Peter, I mean, we're, we're told there's major defenses. It's like four guards. He's chained between two. There's multiple doors. We're told eventually there is an iron gate. Peter is absolutely removed from their contact. What do they do? Well, it seems to be this instinct that they just want to come together. So they gather at Mary's house. Mary's like the hub of the church in Jerusalem, it seems. And they gather together to pray. And at this point, our passage provides us with a rather surprising perspective on the situation. If you don't have the passage open, I invite you just to do that and just look for a moment at verse 5, because I think 5 is a very interesting verse here. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know, that but, it's kind of like saying the first thing is bad, but there's something that's going to, to resolve it. It's kind of like, 
we had to stop really quickly, but we had seatbelts on. Or the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. We say that when we're saying that the second thing says the first thing isn't really to be that worried much about. Yes, Peter is facing a death sentence. Yes, he is chained to guards, guarded by other guards with multiple doors and an iron gate, but the people of God are praying. Imagine if we looked at life more in that fashion. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, and I cannot find a job for the life of me. But God's people are praying for me right now. Or this person that I love seems so hardened to the gospel, and it doesn't seem like anything I say makes a difference. But God's people are praying. Or even what we've been talking about, this nation seems so torn apart and it's hard to feel hopeful, but throughout the country, God's people are praying. So who knows what might happen? When you pray, do you find yourself looking expectantly, waiting, even as things seem hopeless? See, prayer, viewed rightly, is an act of defiance against despair because it believes that we have a God that we can hope in. Peter is imprisoned, but the people of God are praying. So moving towards verse 6, we see that eventually Peter is almost out of time now. It's at the end of the Feast of Weeks. It's Passover. It's the very night before Peter's trial. And I wonder if at this point the Christians who've been praying day after day are starting to run out of hope. And just as a side note, doesn't this always seem to be the way that God acts? Or a lot of the times it says this is when God intervenes at the 11th hour. We saw that in Exodus, didn't we? When does God part the Red Sea? It's when the Egyptian army is right there about to get them. When does God give manna? It's when they're completely out of food. Sometimes God is the God of even the 12th or the 13th hour, I've heard said, and it's right. Think of, think of the story with Lazarus, that Jesus comes not right before Lazarus dies, but after. And this is not because God loses track of time or because God procrastinates. It's because God knows that we need to learn to wait on him so that we can learn to hope in him. And, and that's what's happening here. God waits till the very night before Peter's trial. Peter is sleeping in this 11th hour, probably because he has just been praying and he's exhausted and he's kind of just given up. And, and meanwhile, as he is sleeping, the people of God are praying, as I said, maybe themselves running out of hope. And in fact, Peter is sleeping so deeply that even when this angel that says brings about this bright light stands right next to him, it does not wake him up. It says literally that the angel has to hit Peter to bring him out of his sleep. And I can only imagine what that must have been like for Peter. I mean, if I'm in a deep sleep and one of my kids has to wake me up in the middle of the night, I kind of have this startle reflex. Can you imagine what it'd be like if you were broken out of deep sleep by a bright, shining angel unlike anything you'd seen before? So, so the angel tells Peter to, to wake up, to get dressed, and in this moment, what happens next is this wonderful anticlimax. What, what you have here is not, 
It's not some Christian spiritual version of a heist story where, you know, the angel comes in and they have to figure out how to pick the lock and then there's hand-to-hand combat with a guard and suddenly they figure out a way to kind of open the iron door. It's, it's almost incidental. It basically says, and so then the, the chains fell off of Peter and they just walked by the guards and we don't even know if the guards are asleep or they don't know what's going on. And it even says the iron gate opened itself. It's kind of like, oh, please, let me do this for you. The gate itself, there, there is zero drama. There is zero struggle here. Because that's, that's what the sovereignty of God looks like. You know, we, I think sometimes we'll use language, and we have to, of saying that God works, or that God is fighting against things. And, and again, we have to speak of God in our human terms, but we should remember that there is zero struggle for God. There is no effort that it takes God to do anything. I mean, he's the one who speaks and an entire universe comes into existence. And so also here, God chooses and it is going to take place. I wonder if that's sometimes the reason that we struggle to actually come to God in prayer. What what is before us seems so big, so overwhelming, so monumental, and we forget that for God, it is a matter of just choosing and it will be taken care of. And that's, that's the reason that verse 5 makes sense when it talks about how Peter is in prison, but they were praying. Sure, there are guards and chains and gates holding Peter, Peter, but the people whom God loves are praying, and they are praying to the absolutely sovereign, almighty God. So, the angel effortlessly brings Peter out of prison. And then Peter finds himself in the middle of the town, bewildered. It says, until this point, he, he had just assumed this was all a dream. Like, it didn't even occur to him that this possibly could be happening until the angel leaves him, and he's by himself, and he's cold, and he's realizing, oh, wait a second, I'm awake. And so he makes his way to Mary's house, and, and he knocks on the door on the outside gate, and Rhoda, who seems to be the person who's in charge, making sure that if people want to come in, they can come in, asks who it is, and, and she hears him. And it's me, Peter. And she totally immediately recognizes the voice, and it says she's filled with joy. She's probably screamed, and she just kind of ran. It's Peter! It's Peter! It's Peter! And when she gets to this church, again, we see this kind of anti-climax. It, it reminds me a little bit of what happens when the people come back after Jesus is risen from the dead and tell everyone else. No one believes them. No one believes Rhoda. You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Or it must be his angel. Now, in that day, there was this kind of silly superstition that was believed that when someone died, the angel that had been kind of watching over them took the form of the person who died for a few days and could be seen kind of walking around the area. And they assumed that must be what's going on here. Now, just think about this for a moment. What's happening? Perhaps right before Rhoda interrupted, you have God's people praying, Lord, please, we know it is almost out of time. Please spare Peter's life. Please rescue. Please bring him. And then Rhoda comes, Peter's here. And like, no, that can't possibly be true. They would rather believe a superstition that's ridiculous than believe that God has actually answered their prayer. In fact, there's a pattern here if you pay attention to it. Peter, it must be a dream. It can't be God doing this for me. God's people, it must be a ghost. Even Herod later on is going to be, oh, it's just the incompetence of my guards. Remember, this is the 
time where miracles are taking place. People are being miraculously healed. Demons are being cast out. And yet, it is inconceivable in that moment for people to recognize that God might actually be answering the prayer that they have prayed for the last few days. Which is kind of encouraging to me a little bit because it, it helps me to see that, that we're not the only ones who struggle to believe that God, the God of the universe, answers prayer. Because isn't that the case? You and I, we will in times of desperation pray, and then we won't even look to see an answer, and then we'll be surprised when it happens. What I get discouraged by is, is sometimes God answers prayer in just this remarkable, unmistakable fashion, and I will see it then, but a year later, it will kind of almost like fade away, and I'll start kind of almost second-guessing, and it's like, am I just reading something into that, or is that actually God having done that? We have such, we are so, I think, besieged by this counter-narrative that we forget the reality that God is at work and that God answers prayer. So meanwhile, as all of this is happening, he says, they keep on telling her she's out of her mind. They keep on telling her must be it. And meanwhile, Peter keeps knocking, which, you know, like, you, you got to imagine there's some, like, real humor here. Peter's like, come on, God can bring me out of a prison, but I can't even get through the front door of my own family, friend's house? Finally, after all of this knocking, they open the door to Peter, and they celebrate and they are rejoicing, and they're probably wanting to hug Peter, and it says Peter kind of motions to them, and Peter tells them the truth that he had come to realize when he was alone outside in the city. He says, the Lord, and by the Lord he's meaning the real king, not Herod, Jesus, he sent his angel to rescue me from Herod and to bring me out of prison. Our Lord has promised that he would be with us, and he is, and he answered your prayer. Now we move from this time of joy and we cut to the final scene of our story. We go back to Herod. He's the one who kind of began the story and now we see it ending and it is a completely different mood, isn't it? While there's joy in Mary's house, it says there is no little disturbance. I love this understatement. You can tell that Herod is absolutely furious. He looks bad in the eyes of the Jewish leadership, and he doesn't know what to do. In his anger, he investigates. He can't figure out what happened. So what does he do? He decides to kill the guards. This is the ultimate expression of trying to feel powerful when you realize you are utterly impotent. It does nothing, but it makes him feel like he's doing something important. And what it really does is it exposes the lie that has underpinned our conception of what's going on from the beginning of this passage. Much as Herod wants to gather all this power to himself, as powerful as he looks, before God, he is utterly without power. And I think that's actually the heart, the core of what we're supposed to understand from this passage. This is the final contrast, the, the contrast between the joy in the church and the futility in Herod's courts, it helps us to understand that the kingdom of the world that appears to our eyes so powerful, and it does, we, we get so focused on who is in charge politically, and our lives and our minds sometimes depend on who's going to be the one who makes this vote or that. We get so focused on the, on the military might, we get so focused on the economics, and we feel like that is where the power is, and it isn't. 
No power exists in the world except what God has given to the different people and forces. And God is really the one who is in control. And he's really the one who's in charge. Within the kingdom of God, what seems so weak, don't we feel so weak sometimes, even as a church, yet there is this immeasurable power at work in us that we cannot even conceive of at times. I mean, isn't that what we see at the cross? There was a time when people looked and they saw nothing but weakness as the power of this world, as Pilate and as Herod and as the Jewish leaders sought to exert their control and as Jesus looked to every human conception to be helpless on the cross and yet the most powerful thing that ever took place was happening as God was conquering sin and death and Satan. And the very power that rose Jesus from the dead, God says, is now at work in his church, in us. And this is why you and I have every reason to reject the narrative of despair and to hope and to pray. When you see the news assessments, and inevitably you will see at this end of the year that 2017 was terrible and 2018 will be worse, don't forget what is true. That the God of the universe who is in control, who can speak and whatever he speaks will come to power, he calls you his children. And he invites, to call you, he invites you to call him father. And he invites us to cry out to him, and he hears our cries. And he answers our prayers, sometimes not in the ways that we want, but always in ways that are good. And in everything, he is working things out for the good. And every moment throughout the world, our God is answering the prayer we prayed earlier, your kingdom come, your will be done as he is bringing people to himself, rescuing people from sin, establishing his church, making things right, until one day, one day we will hear a voice in heaven proclaiming the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the story that is true. In just a moment, we are going to be eating a meal that God gives us to remind us of what is real and what is true. But before we do that, I invite you to take a moment just to kind of pause in silence before God, to confess where it is that we have not trusted in him, where we have not looked to him in prayer, and ask God to kind of lead us more to see what is true and what is real, and then I will lead us in a time of confession subsequent to that. So would you please join with me in a time of quiet confession?
Father, you see the weakness of our faith. You see our tendency to trust much more in what we can see than to trust in you who have loved us and have created us. Father, forgive us for the times where we don't even pray or for the times when we do pray and we don't look for an answer or for the times even when we see an answer but we fail to give you thanks because it doesn't even occur to us that you hear our prayer and that you are in control. Lord, we ask that you would turn us from this false despair and that you would enliven in us the hope that comes in the gospel and the knowledge that Christ has risen from the dead, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, that he is working out his purposes and that he will come again. And so, Father, now as we come to this table that you have given us to nourish our faith as we wait for Christ's return, we ask that you would do exactly that. That even as we realize our own inadequacy, that you would convince our hearts again of the sufficiency of Christ and that you would nourish our souls in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Having confessed our sins, hear again the good news of the gospel from 1 Peter. For to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Thanks be to God.